welcome back to Blood, Bones and Brains. I should stop promising episodes on any sort of regular schedule. As I promised it would only be two days since my last episode, to make up for the fact that I was a week late with that episode, which I hope you enjoyed. But, as for this episode, we're nearly three weeks late. However, here we are, so, and today I think... As promised, I will talk about a general purpose biology lab and its equipment. I won't do their history in detail. This is just an overview of that equipment. As per normal, the question is where to start. This seems to be the recurrent gag on this series so far. But in this case, I really don't know where to start intuitively. There are many options. Uh, Alright, screw it. Let's go with the most used tool in biology lab, the air displacement pipette. Right about now, I'm wishing this was a YouTube series, which I might do in the future. Because showing is, as we all know, easier than telling. But here we go. As a quick shortcut, watch house. Despite its other problems, they usually use pipettes mostly correctly. As a side note, movies and TV are remarkably bad at using pipettes generally. They are learning how to make it look like you're using a gun properly, so how is it so hard to do it with pipetting? The air displacement pipette is what we all know as the pipette. Its job is to move accurate volumes of liquids from one place to another. They work due to the wildly but good enough for government work principle that nature abhors a vacuum. When operated, air is squeezed out of the pipette and that volume is replaced in a disposable tip with the volume of liquid you want to use. These are made by many people, including Gilson, Star Labs and Thermo Scientific. Although Gilson is of course the GOAT. For a few different reasons. Pipettes come in a few different sizes and forms, ranging from 10mm down to 0.2 microliters. There are, also, there are also ones with multiple shafts called multi-channels, and they allow for the movement of 6 to 24 identical volumes of liquid at the same time. They are a godsend, and they protect your thumbs from RSI when doing large 96 or more well plates. This is one of my friend's favourite pieces of equipment. And I have to agree, it's in my top five. As important as the pipettes are, the plastic tips are even more so. These are used as the reservoir for the liquid and set the volume of the pipette. P20 pipette tips fit on P200 pipettes, for instance. But you can't take up 200 microliters in a P20 pipette, only 20 microliters. They also protect the pipette itself, as any corrosive or pathogenic substances pipetted are not drawn into the permanent components of the pipette. Though Gilson make their pipettes quote-unquote field strippable to steal a ferries so that they can be cleaned out and then autoclaved. A problem I have with pipettes, and I imagine all left-handers in this world have with pipettes, is that anyone who is not Gilson or Star Labs have a habit of putting their dial window on the left-hand side. Extremely practical, you're thinking right about now. No, I tell you no. This is because, if you are a right-hander, it does make all the sense in the world. You can see the dial without moving your hand on the pipette. 
But why did you just shout no? I hear you muttering. Well, if you are left-handed, the window ends up being in your palm and not under your fingers. Meaning you either transfer the pipette to your right hand or hold it in a stupid and uncomfortable fashion to change the volume whilst reading the dial. I really hope this was a patent avoiding thing and not some decision made by a right-handed engineer somewhere. The next most important piece of equipment in a bioscience lab is the centrifuge. These spinning lumps of barely controlled death are used to separate things out from a liquid mixture. These could be red or white blood cells from blood, proteins from plasma, it could be DNA whilst DNA has been extracted, or it could be bacteria from a liquid growth medium. The possibilities are literally endless. Centrifuges come in two major breeds, fixed rotors and swing arm rotors. Either way, I should probably take a second and explain why I call them lumps of barely controlled death. It is because they are lumps of barely controlled death, with their metal components, i.e. the rotors, spinning at at least 13,000 RPM. Imagine, if you will, a top-loading washing machine, but a solid centre rather than a hollow one, spinning about 10 times as fast. As you can imagine, things can go very, very sideways if the axle lets go. Washing machines are shake, rattle and rollers, giving Elvis a run for his money, but that's nothing compared to an unbalanced centrifuge. This is one piece of equipment we do not want to be laissez-faire with. Luckily, most modern centrifuges have an unbalanced rotor detector and an interlock so that you can't run them with the door open. Still, the big ones, running at 25,000 RPM or more, scare me all the way to the church door. There are some variations on the centrifuge. For instance, you can get tiny, 10,000 or so RPM lab spinners that hold only a few 1.5mm Eppendorfs or a strip of PCR tubes. These things are cute and super useful. They are used to pull the liquid within a tube to the bottom, usually to make pipetting easier. Scuttling away from the spinning death comes the thing that we all associate with biology, the light microscope. This is, depending on your specialty, either your best friend or sat on a desk gathering dust. For instance, clinical microbiology, the one specialty that you would think would use microscopy a lot, just doesn't anymore. PCR, polymerase chain reaction, has almost completely superseded the old methods of colony and bacterial morphology. It is much more accurate and generally more sensitive, as you don't have to grow the bacteria out of your sample. And because of that, it saves time. Always a good thing for both clinical labs and for patients, who, if they do have a bacterial infection, could do with knowing what it is right here and right now. But histopathology and hematology are still rather dependent on their light microscopes. Morphology of cells, although rather more subjective than we'd like, is still a good indicator that something is amiss with disorders such as anemia presenting as morphologically very different. 
even if you cannot diagnose from the blood film, it often gives a narrower set of tests to catch which of the usual suspects it is. Leukemias, for instance, are real obvious in a blood film, as you will have an overabundance of morphologically weird-looking cells. Overabundance here is a bit of a misleading term, but roll with it for now. And its heart, the light microscope hasn't changed from Anton's single lens setup in the 1660s. It has just got super fat, or super thick, if you want to be down with the kids, gaining extra lenses and its own light source. My gosh, how bourgeois. Starting at the top of a microscope, let's work our way through the components. Generally, at the top, there is the eyepiece. These are usually, with decent lab microscopes, a dual lens setup, one for each eye. This reduces eye strain. These lenses are usually 10 power, setting the minimum magnification as generally 40 times. Next comes the main body of the microscope, including the nose, where the objective lenses are mounted, and the base. Not much interesting going on here, just a mounting points for the various components. Attached to this body below the nose is the stage, a flat surface with a set of clips on which the slide is placed. This stage has a hole in it which allows light to pass through from the light source, usually a honking great bulb, from below. The stage is the major mechanical part of the microscope. If you remember Anton's single lens microscope had three screws placed at 90 degrees to each other, allowing for the movement of the sample, but also for the focusing of the microscope, well, the compounds have that function too. It tends to be that the stage has all the controls, moving up and down for focusing on the big focusing knobs on the side, and moving freely in the Z and X axes. These directions are usually controlled with a rack and pinion. With that, it should be said, there are two major types of microscope, a normal and an inverted. This describes the placement of the nose and the light source in relation to each other and the stage. In a normal microscope, such as the one you are imagining right now, the eyepiece, the body, the stage and the light are all in a line from top to bottom. An inverted microscope has its objective lenses below the stage and the light source above. The inverted microscope is a friend of mine's favourite piece of equipment that she uses on a day-to-day -day basis, as she does a lot of tissue culture. However, I have another friend whose love is the normal microscope, but she's a parasitologist, so I guess she's forgiven. At this moment, I guess you're turning on to Matt Parker's YouTube channel to find that clip of him saying, Why? Well, there is an easy answer to that, and a more difficult one. The easy answer is to do a simple size of samples. A flask containing culturing won't fit under a normal microscope's lens. The stage just doesn't move low enough. The more complex answer is that, especially with those flasks for culturing, the focal plane is all in the wrong place. There's a big pile of air and a sheet of glass or plastic between the subject and the lens, and it will always be out of focus. You could invert the flask, but then you run into two problems. Space and gravity. Alright, I hear you, Albert. Shut up. I know that's one problem. 
space, it simply won't fit under the microscope. And for that thing involving the German genius, well, the growth media will just stay in the same place. Removing your cells from their home, if they're sticky, or just keeping them suspended at the new bottom of the flask, as the media will always stay at the bottom, no matter which way you turn the flask. Hence the need for the inverted microscope. Because the lenses are now on the bottom of the microscope, the focal plane is now found at the bottom of the stage, but with all the air gap above them. A photo here would help. I'll link to a few. So, found in the nose are the objective lenses. They come in selection of powers, from four times all the way up to a hundred times. These are generally replaceable, but are usually found on normal microscopes as of 10 to 20 or 40 and 100. 4 times to 40 times, so that's 40 to 400 times uh, with, with the eyepiece lenses, are generally okay to use without oil, as the resolution is not affected by the interface between different media, i.e. plastic, liquid media and air. However, However, 100 times is affected by refraction problems due to the changes in media uh, that the light undergoes as it passes from the light source to the objective lenses. To mitigate this, oil has to be used to act as the bridge between the, sub the subject and the objective lens. Because of this, inverted microscopes only generally go up to 40 times, which is more than enough detail to see cells from animals and plants as compared to bacteria, because animal cells are behemoths. Think Peter Jackson style mumakils to normal elephants. The last thing to talk about with light microscopes is that they can be attached to a camera or to a laser, and this allows for some really cool modern microscopy, including confocal microscopy and fluorescent microscopy, such as fluorescent in situ hybridization, or fish best acronym ever really. Pretty cool experiment too, but you know, as usual, for another time. With that brief flyby, microscopes are done. That was the three classical pieces of equipment found in every biomedical lab, and every research lab for that matter. Now for some more specialist kit. Excluding the histology embedding equipment, ubiquitous in most hospital labs, but not really outside of that setting. The number one most important piece of modern equipment in any lab is the polymerase chain reaction thermocycler. This is, at its heart, a big toaster that allows for the amplification of DNA outside the cells. This is pretty damn cool and will be the subject of its own episode because of how fundamental it is to modern biomedicine. And will include talking about Carrie Mullis. Boo! Originally, Carrie Mollis's thermocycler was just three different temperature water baths found at 98, 72 and 65-ish degrees centigrade that had to be transferred manually every 15 seconds or so for a couple of hours. Man alive, the past was boring. Luckily, for everyone's mental health, it is now done completely with a metal block that has as is now standard, 96 wells. 
The heating and cooling of this block occurs through the Peltier effect, which is the heating and cooling of metals by running currents through two different metals. It is so effective that modern blocks have their control over their temperature to 0.5 degrees. This is vitally important to the success of PCR and in general and also for other experiments that you can run using PCR blocks to do with how DNA just how DNA breaks apart. These are so good that they can bring the block down to below zero and above 100 degrees. These machines come in two major types, the straight PCR block and the real-time quantitative PCR block, which is another whole level of extra with lasers and fluorescence detectors. I'll go through these boxes of magic at the same time as going through PCR proper. The final and ultra-important variation on the PCR machine is the Sanger sequencer. This is a big old machine that combines two parts of DNA work, amplification and visualization in agarose or polyacrylamide gel. Between the use of lasers and polyacrylamide, sequencers can resolve DNA down to one base pair and can give you an accurate sequence for upwards of 16 genes. Originally performed using base pairs tagged with a radioisotope, they now have one of four fluorescent molecules attached to each base pair, red for A, green for T, etc, etc. As powerful th as these are, it is extremely difficult to sequence multiple genes, though not impossible, nor is it impossible to sequence an entire gene in one go, including all of its non-translated components. Therefore, Sanger sequences are slowly being phased out in favour of the Illumia-style next-generation sequences. That can, if you have enough storage capability, give you a full genome sequence. A miracle just a get decade ago. The major users of these sequences seem to be the ethnicity services, such as 23andMe. But they are becoming more and more important across all the services. You won't hear me complain, 23andMe, if you want to sponsor me. The difference in operation is worth an entire episode on its own, with a conversation about the Human Genome Project, Craig Venter, and his longtime friend Frederick Sanger himself. At this point, we'll get to my personal favourite machine, the flow cytometer, or FAX, fluorescently activated cell sorting. Between the various PCRs and flow cytometry, cancers now have very little places to hide. That and modern haematology labs would look very different without flow cytometers as modern blood autoanalyzers are basically dumbed down cytometers. Yeah, you heard me, haematology. Fight me. Another machine that looks like a giant box. This cytometer is another laser-based technology. Biology really has seemed to take in the laser and run with it. Mostly, this is because of the discovery and use of fluorescent molecules such as FITSI or its um, update Alexafluor, as well as the green fluorescent protein and its family of mutated fluorescent proteins giving a whole variety of different colours from yellow all the way down to infrared. At its heart the cytometer is a big computer-aided counter counting and interrogating the 
the target of interest, 99% of cases, human cells. To do this, the cells have to be separated into single cells. This is done by a clever system of hydraulic pressure and extremely thin tubes. This sorting into single cells allows for the true party piece of the flow cytometer to shine through. The analysis of fluorescent intensity. This colour can come from internally, i.e. translated GFP, or from fluorescent molecules attached to antibodies. We've all heard about antibodies. They deserve an episode or two by themselves, for the simple reason that so many assays use them. This includes, this includes facts, but also includes ELISA's western, southern and northern blotting, magnetically activated cell sorting, and a myriad of other things. The chemical bonding of an antibody to a coloured tag is simply fantastic. This uh, tagging allows facts to show graphically the quantity of present antibody target, most usually a protein. This quantity is an exact value. There is an ability to say that this value of brightness equals exactly this number of copies of the protein, but the reporting of bright, mid, or dim values are more than sufficient to detect changes in cellular behaviour, as found in cancers. The big boys of the flow world are BD Bioscience, who have a glorious habit of naming their machines and funny names. The best one being, of course, Fax Calibre. It's just so good. I mean, the flow itself is now obsolescent. But the name, oh my gosh, the name, it will make me laugh until my dying day. Fax Calibre. Uh... Yeah, that's my Lady of the Lake impression. Two more specialist pieces of kit are now to be spoken about to round out the episode. The incubator and the sterile hood. A bit bizarre to talk about them together, you might think, but no, not really. It makes a deal of sense, as they are two pieces of kit that makes it possible to grow cells in vitro, i.e. outside of the body. Incubators are exactly what you think they are. Boxes that, with heating elements and a thermostat. But that's not all they are. If you're growing bacteria, say for identification, most of the time you can get away with using an incubator that's literally just a hot box. But when you want to start growing bacteria that live deep in the gut, or animal cells, then you start ha then you have to start modulating the atmosphere, increasing the carbon dioxide concentration from background levels, uh, which is about 0.041%, up to about 4%. The reason for this, at least in my view, but I will look this up before I do anything deeper on this, is that the reason for the carbon dioxide is to act as a buffer in the changing acidity of the growth medium as cells use up the materials found within the medium. Simply put, it better mimics the conditions within the body using a system that is found in most animals, carbonate buffering. Incubators should be sterile, even if growing bacteria, as fungus will overwhelm bacterial plates. You don't want more easily growing bacteria growing instead of your more fastidious bacteria. E. coli and tuberculosis come to mind. Fastidious in this context means that the bacteria are hard to grow, rather than the more intuitive meaning of hard to kill. But, you know, biology. The hoods are of a similar concept and are used for two different but related purposes. Firstly, to protect your cells. Animal cells grown in vitro 
don't have an immune system to protect them. So if they pick up an infection, bacterial or viral, that's it. You're done. You've lost that cell line. There are ways of mitigating that, using an antibacterial cocktail, for instance, but that can merely suppress the problem and not truly be preventative. Secondly, and in some ways more importantly, to protect you, the worker. Hoods come in a few varieties, from simple three-sided boxes with a UV light used in PCR, to fully blown sealed boxes with inbuilt gloves, more properly called sterile cabinets. The most common, however, is the laminar flow hood, which uses the movement of air and filters to prevent dirt getting into the work by producing a bubble of moving air around the hood. It is similar in concept, though more complex in practicality, to using a Bunsen burner whilst doing benchtop microbiology. The heat from the Bunsen producing a bubble of convected air that reduces the ability for airborne particles to land on your agar or in your liquid media. The different hoods lead to the obvious question again of why? Well, in this case, this answer has to be given after talking about the pathological agent category system. For another time, then. Of course, this isn't the end of the party for equipment. Immunology has auto-analyzers for antibodies towards the usual suspects, anti-double-stranded DNA, for instance. But as we all know, it's never lupus. Well, apart from that one time, it was lupus, but, you know. Biochemistry has its own auto-analyzers for chemical concentrations, blood sugar, thyroxine levels, calcium, potassium, and the like. But I'm not currently sure how they work, and when I get around to them, I will look it up, and I will then know, and hopefully so will you. With that splash and dash done, it is back to the early history of the NHS, Nye Bevan and Clement Attlee, who it, whose turn it is for being in the limelight. From there, a more detailed history of a piece of equipment, probably microscopy. A lot more names involved in there than just Anton's, including some of the biggest boys in the business. Thank you for being very, very patient with me and listening to episode 3. Cue title music written and performed by Carl David Smith. Yeah.